This is The Guardian. So crispy can chicken. Jetzt nur bei McDonald's. Der McCrispy Homestyle mit extra crispy chicken. Und neu McCrispy Homestyle Spicy Guacamole. Nur für kurze Zeit. In allen teilnehmenden Restaurants, nicht zu unseren Frühstückszeiten. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Arsenal blink first in the title race as Liverpool roll back the year, singular, and give us all their 21-22 version and go from 2-0 down to perhaps being unlucky not to win a great game. And yet again, we have to ask, how do we feel about beefcake referees' assistants elbowing fullbacks? Speaking of officials, every decision right at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium or something like that. Brighton get another apology from the PGMOL. Five apologies and you get your next one free. Newcastle and Manchester United take another step towards Champions League football. Meanwhile, at the bottom, Southampton can't cope with Timothy Haaland. Not Jesse Marsh's Leicester fall to Bournemouth. David Moyes gets a reprieve. Matthias Nunes scores a banger again against Frank Lampard's Chelsea and the handbrakes off the Roy Hodgson-Mobile. Five goals at Leeds. Also today, promotion for Burnley Celtic on their way to the title. Your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendenning, welcome. Hi, Max. Hello, Will Unwin. Good morning. And hello, Troy Townsend. Hi, Max. Uh, only one place to start, Anfield. Liverpool 2, Arsenal 2. Arsenal dominated the first half. Liverpool the second. It's one of the best games I've ever seen. I'm not exaggerating. Exaggerated Micah Richards. Um, but, Barry, it was brilliant. Yes. Uh, superbly entertaining game in which both sides will feel they should have won. Both sides could have lost. Is it a point gained or two points lost for Arsenal? We don't know. Uh, I'd I probably think it's a point gain. And I think some people are suggesting they may have thrown it away. But it's one of those games where both teams were brilliant in for periods of time. And because Arsenal were brilliant first, this, the thinking is, oh, they blew it. But I think by the end, obviously, the Aaron Ramsdale was called upon to make some two outstanding saves. One quite good save from Darwin Nunes. And... Arsenal were probably in the end lucky to get away with the point. Um, whether it will be enough, only time will tell. But it was a game as well in which we saw the best and worst of Trent Alexander-Arnold. Uh, I presume we'll talk about that later. Um, there was drama involving officials. And I, I absolutely loved it. I, I really, really enjoyed it as a neutral. Yeah, what, what changed, Will? After about 40 minutes, lots of people are making, are saying, you know, Granite Xhaka left a bit on Trent Alexander-Arnold and suddenly the famous Anfield crowd got interested in the game and that turned everything. Is that a kind of oversimplification of of the events that happened? It's, it's a slight oversimplification, but I think what you saw in the first half was two teams that on paper, obviously if you've not looked at the league table, are actually very similar in quality. But in the first half, Arsenal had that confidence that Liverpool had been missing all season. You know, you look at the Van Dijk touch for the first goal. You look at, you know, allowing Jesus to get a yard of space for seconds because the players aren't on the top of their game and that's what happens. But they were still creating chances. They're still going forward well. But they, they couldn't find that little extra until the Xhaka, the Xhaka Trent Alexander-Arnold moment where it all kicked off and 
you can say as you know we can talk as much as you like about tactics and what but it does help having a bit of aggression and a bit of fire that you're lacking when you've not got any confidence in your team and it did change the Anfield crowd did change the players it got them up it's like oh you know we're we're not going to lose to to this rabble you know we want to we're going to give it everything and it, it did switch and it switches your mentality it focused the players I think where you know I think they're getting lost in their thoughts when things aren't going well and that's what that did change and the energy levels go up and when your energy levels go up you improve your performance and everything was a bit more efficient bit tighter and a bit more desire to go forward and do things and to you know win those 50 50 jewels and everything so it was it was a a, you know, a good flicker, flicker the switch for Liverpool at that stage. But you know, they've always had it in their bag, and they're waiting for that moment that the that things have clicked this season after you know a pretty a pretty dire state of affairs. Yeah, it was actually nice, Troy, to see old Liverpool, wasn't it? Well, I don't know about old Liverpool, but listen, definitely for me that was the pivotal moment, um, and the reason why is because Liverpool capitalised on it immediately, whereas. Arsenal were running away with that game at a canter, even at 40 minutes. You know, they, they'd set their stall. They knew what they wanted to do. They, they absolutely knew um, Liverpool's weak areas and they exposed them. And it, and it needed something to, to get the crowd motivated that their team were involved in a football match. Because before then, I think they just turned up and didn't even believe in the team themselves. The performance against Chelsea wasn't great, was it? So it, it pumped them up. It got them going. It was a perfect time to score, get them back in the game. And then they were probably disappointed that halftime came around. But definitely, um, you know, the second half was one that, you know, yeah, it was one of the best games that I've I've seen in, in my lifetime, I believe. <laughs> yes, Barry? I, I was watching this with some friends when Jamie Carragher made that comment, you know, after the Jackie incident, you know, if this Anfield crowd's sleeping, don't wake them up. And that prompted much eye-rolling, you know, about Anfield's mythical status because... In common with many English grounds, it's not the Red Star Stadium or the Bombonera, is it? But it did seem to have a noticeable effect and it did seem to galvanise Liverpool. And they, they had been, you know, the game was running away from Liverpool and the crowd were, you know, obviously fast asleep and not contributing much. Yeah, I, Seb says, and you sort of touched on this earlier, but in the end, not a bad result for Arsenal, is it? I genuinely can't tell if I'm relieved about coming out of Anfield with a point or if I'm upset about the gap to Man City's shrinking. I need you to tell me what to think. I mean, Ian Wright on Match of the Day was very positive about that result, Will, saying, look, we are, the record at Arsenal is, at Anfield is terrible. It's a point gained. But once you are 2-0 up, I mean, and I also think they were probably lucky to get anything by the end, you know, even though that, that moment where Canate sort of his chest isn't strong enough. So like you'd thought he'd have quite a tough chest, but it's not. And then like a minute later, if Martinelli puts Saka through, that Arsenal could easily win it. But how do you, what do you, do you think that is a point gained or, or two dropped? Well, it's, I think it's definitely a point gained on the day, obviously outside of Arsenal for Manchester City at the moment with their run of, you know, eight consecutive wins looking like the machine they, generally get to by early April most seasons. It's a very worrying two points dropped because if City beat Arsenal and they win their game in hand, then City will go top on goal difference. And that's what Arsenal will be worried about now. And it, when the, when you are worried about seeing what's coming up behind you, you can take your eye off the ball and become a bit panicked. And if you are going to win the league, having a 2-0 lead away from home, whether it's Anfield or Bournemouth, no offence to Bournemouth, 
you know, you have to, you have to maintain it. And so a, it will probably be quite a demoralizing one. They'll be a little bit relieved that they got away with a point, but the main thing now is that they'll be over looking over their shoulder, worrying what's coming at them. You think, Troy? I mean, there are so many pivotal moments in this game. Actually, just the penalty miss, which Dion Dublin said is a criminal offence, which is really quite <laughs> quite tough, isn't it? And presumably not as big a sentence as attempted murder that we discussed at length last Monday. And then you've got like Zinchenko just letting Trent almost let. I mean, it was great from Alexander Arnold, but at that moment, you think Arsenal have basically done it. And it's just so easy for Alexander Arnold. Or am I? Am I not giving Trent credit? And we we should give Trent credit when we can. <laughs> we, <what laughs> yeah, I think we have to give Trent credit when we can. And I don't want to then go into the motion of slaughtering his defensive uh, game at all. But you know, he's very clever there, and he and he kind of drew Zivchenko in. But you knew how much it it meant to to him to Zivchenko when you saw a picture of him or the footage of him on the touchline with his head in his hands, because he knew that was a massive moment. But again, that's where that's where Trent's at his strongest. You know, do Liverpool need to look at, you know, they, they keep trying to play him in, in, in a position where actually everyone is excited to play against him. He's not getting any better in that position, is he? So, you know, it, it was a great piece of play. Um, fantastic header from Firmino. Brilliant header, something that we hadn't seen from Liverpool at that time. But then... The game just descended into madness not long after that. Salah's penalty missed for the first time. I never felt confident with him taking the pen. And I, listen, it's definitely a point game from where it was. The Ramsdale saves were unbelievable and they could be the thing that actually hand um, Arsenal the title after an incredible last couple of minutes. I must say that I thought Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville got their screeching in tandem at that moment that Kanate uh, should have scored, didn't score. But yeah, it was at very, very high pitch, that's for sure. OK, the half-time elbow. Um, the FA and the PGMOL have launched investigations after the assistant referee, Konstantin Hatsidakis, appeared to elbow Andy Robertson. Um, Robertson had been warned by Paul Tierney for um, haranguing him earlier in the game and was booked for dissent uh, if you book one, you got to book both, surely. <laughs> um, the same group of match officials were involved in controversy with Robertson and Liverpool last year when he was sent off and Harry Kane avoided a red card for a really bad foul, if you remember it. Jonathan says, after the wanton elbow on Andy Robertson by an official, what do the panel think is a suitable punishment to deter similar offences? Are player body cam trials within the grassroots game the next logical step? Um, Dermot, linesman elbowing players, can we finally admit that everybody wants to see it? Sam, after this afternoon's halftime antics at Anfield, will Howard Webb be secretly looking forward to apologising for something slightly more left field? Um, Barry, Roy Keane called Andy Robertson a big baby. And kept saying baby. I mean, it was a very funny television. <laughs> and my gut reaction is it, it was sort of something of nothing. Robertson touches him, he flicks his elbow. And I, I don't know if people are calling for his career to be over. I suspect on some area of the internet they are. But you probably can't be doing that if you are a, an official. Yeah, I kind of agree with Roy Keane. At first, I thought maybe Robertson had blindsided him and come at him from behind and it was just a natural reaction he didn't realize it was a player thought it might have been someone a pitch invader or something but he clearly knew it was Robertson he did appear to to raise an elbow and I suspect he'll be in a lot of trouble because if Robertson did the same thing to him Robertson would be in a lot of trouble part of me thinks they should just shake hands and you know um Hadzik Hatsidakis should 
apologise and that should be the end of it. But I don't think that's what will happen. I think he will be in trouble for that um, and probably deserves to be. But it was quite funny, <laughs> having said that. Do you think it makes a difference, Will, that Hatsidakis is absolutely enormous? Like if it was Darren Can or, so, you know, you know, if it was just like a, it's like a slightly a spindly or a more rotund referee's assistant, it just wouldn't look the same. This is like a big guy. It looks like he could, he could eat Andy Robertson. Yeah, he he looks like the sort of person that has moved from boxing match officialing to football. Football. He's a, he's a big fella. He's not to be messed with. You think a stare might do it rather than just an, rather than an elbow to the face. So I was quite surprised he went physical. He seems like smart enough to do it in the tunnel as well. So it was a it, it looks bad because he is fear, fearsome physic, physically. Whereas as you say, Darren Can, who had a, a good weekend himself. Um, is the sort of man that goes, he, he went on pointless and, <laughs> and won, I think. Whereas I, I don't think the liner from yesterday is, is you know, doing any, any quiz shows apart from, uh, he might do Mastermind with, you know, Bruce Lee movies as his specialist subject. That's potentially what he's offering. But um, yeah, he's a, he, I wouldn't mess with him and I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that a handshake will do it for Andy Robertson, but it might be the best option for Andy because round two probably won't go well for him. You know, there was a little bit of, there was some comedy, some banter in the studio and, and, and on commentary. And I don't think it's a time for comedy and banter. You know, it's an official who uh, is part of, obviously, the, the group of officials that deserve respect, absolutely deserve respect. And, you know, people are saying over the last few weeks, well, it's been over the longest period of time that officials have been manhandled. And, you know, we talk about the impact in grassroots but I'm not quite sure what he was doing. I'm, I, is that a reaction to, to Robinson's touching his arm? It's a bit of a strange reaction. And we cannot make this a, a throwaway when we're demanding that, or the FA are demanding that Mitrovic gets more than eight, by the way. So it has to be taken in the seriousness of the situation and what happened. Now, did he go over to the referee and say, he touched me? And that's why Robertson got his yellow card. I'm still confused as to why Robertson got his yellow card if the referee hadn't seen an incident. So had he highlighted it to him, and that's why he got the yellow card. But I was actually surprised he came out for the second half. And people might be going, oh, that's a bit strong. But he's, he's, you know, he's appeared to elbow somebody. And for me, that's got to be looked into. It's a bit stronger than the comedy that... I thought Sky made it into. I'm glad that somebody on the pod has said that because I think you're probably right. And I think it's quite possible to find this, the events funny and also think that you're probably right, is, is what I would say. Speaking of the PGMOL, they've admitted a mistake was made by the match officials and VAR when not awarding Brighton a penalty. Um, Howard Webb's apologised to them and held talks with them about decision-making process in the game, it's the third apology they've been given by the PGMOL this season for on-field decisions. Uh, this was when um, Hoiberg stood on Matoma. They probably should have had another penalty when Longley pulled back, um, not Harrison Dunk, he's came United's left back, Lewis Dunk. Um, they were pretty unlucky with two VAR disallowed goals and quite unlucky with Harry Kane's deflected winner. So all in all, Will, a richly deserved win for Tottenham. Yeah, great great days for Tottenham. The back, the Stellini era really is off and running, thanks to thanks to VAR. Um, yeah, it was incredible watching it back on Saturday night. Obviously, I was, at, I was at Wolves, so I didn't see it till late, and you run through it, and you're like, oh yeah, it's all a bit dodgy, you know, some bad decisions, etc. 
the Matomo, Matomo handball, um, my good friend Darren Can of Pointless Fame, um, he called it, and I can get over that one. If the if the liner wants to make a decision and he thinks it's happened, there's not enough to overturn it. That's fine. I'll get over that one. The Welbeck disallowed goal. I can't see how there's enough evidence to overturn that. I hope you know to disallow it is mind-boggling. The Matoma penalty, the fact that wasn't given is laughable. He just stood on his foot. He went down. Referee didn't see it. Fine. It's Stuart Atwell. He wants missed a goal, so missing someone standing on a foot is you know quite likely. And the dunk one, I can see why it's not given because they'll end up giving them every single week. But it is a penalty in my view, and I find it especially after the failure of the first one, um, I find it quite strange that they didn't give that. Um, so, yeah, an absolutely terrible day for all the officials at Spurs, especially Michael Salisbury on the VAR. You know, he's literally got access to a TV. Right? It's, I don't know what he didn't see. I'd like an explanation of that. You know, it's, yeah, Spurs, good, good luck to them and their, their mighty win over Brighton. But it makes a big difference because Brighton had won that. They'd have been a point behind Spurs. You know, going into the running, playing for a Champions League space. So it makes a big difference. And these are the things that VAR was supposed to rule out, these sort of errors. And it's pretty embarrassing for all the officials. And I'm sure Howard Webb's phone call would have been a pretty meek one. But yeah, bad day. Well done. Well done, Brighton, for, for not killing anyone. Yeah, look, there's, there's, there is always talk, Troy, that, you know, big teams get the advantage. And you can see, you know, everyone will be influenced by crowds, big crowds. You know, that's a, that is a human reaction, whoever you are, whatever walk of life you are. Lots of people are yelling at you. You know, that will impact how you make your choices. And it's not, revering is not easy. But presumably that, that shouldn't affect you when you are in Stockley Park, unless they fill it with sort of the proportionate number of fans from each club to give you that experience. And so you really have to feel for Brighton because it's the third time. And I know players make mistakes and I, you know, I, I really think we need to back up officials because it's not easy and then it's not going to get easier if everyone just criticises them all the time. But if you were a Brighton fan, you would be saying, like, if that had been Harry Kane who was stood on, if if those had been, you know, disallowed goals by Spurs, what would have what would have happened? That is an understandable reaction for Brighton fans. Yeah, but we can't do the if, what, buts and maybes, unfortunately. But, and there I go saying, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be tricky for you the rest of this pod, mate. <laughs> Uh, all right, let me start slightly differently. Um, I'm pleased that you called Tottenham a top side. They, they look anything but, although their position in the table deserves that. I'm wondering how many calls Howard Webb did make to Brighton because there was a good few incidents there, as Will has mentioned. And, and like you say, with the naked eye, I mean, I don't think Matomas is a handball, but with the naked eye, you would accept it as, you know, the, the lino thought that it, it was handball, but for me, it then goes to Stockley Park. And that's the thing that I'm unclear of. Again, clear and obvious error. Well, it's got to be if he hasn't handballed it and he slammed the ball in the back of the net. I think all of those decisions for Brighton, listen, that the, the handball, McAllister, did it hit his hip? There was an angle where I thought it hit his hip. But listen, Hoiberg on Matomo is a definite penalty. And I do think the dunk one's a definite penalty. When you're dragging somebody back, regardless of whether it happens every week and a non-decision is made every week, it is a pen. You've denied him an opportunity, a, a chance to, to to get his head on that ball. Tierney did the same to Salah in the Liverpool game. Oh, so didn't yeah, but we've done that one, so we're now moving on. We've done that one. You did say, I did get a butt out of it though, Troy. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, listen, uh, 
there was so much going on in the game. It was a really bitty game of football in that second half. and We haven't even gone to the to touchline fracas yet. It, it never got up ahead of steam. It was almost like Spurs were the team. Well, no, both teams had been rolled up so much by the decisions that there was just these bitty fouls and the game never got momentum. And uh, the, the VAR decisions or decisions by the officials were probably not the biggest thing in the game when, you know, it nearly kicked off even before the game had kicked off kind of thing. But... It's got to be better. Howard Webb, who'd, who'd had a quiet few, well, quietish few weeks, is probably thinking, I could go on holiday now because it's been a, an incredible, difficult week for the officials. And, and like you're saying, Max, it's, it's hard to keep criticising because, you know, it's an incredibly difficult job and they do need as much support as possible. But when you see incidents like we've had over the weekend, it's very hard for them not to be the topic of conversation, um, particularly that we're having now. The fracar on the touchline was entertaining wasn't it especially Barry Stellini pretending he had nothing to do with it like, like it was like honestly like he couldn't see it was happening you know <laughs> he was right next to him, he was just standing there oh, and you're just wondering what exactly did you do and then just like <laughs> have absolutely no concept there's a massive fight there's a there's literally a house on fire next to you and you're standing there going I can't I can't see this yeah I I don't really know what went on there um Roberto De Zerbi does have quite I mean, that's not his first red card this season. And I think actually, just quickly going back to the apologies, I think one of Howard Webb's apologies to Brighton, he drove there and made it in person. And uh, De Zerbe just sort of said it was a complete waste of time. And he, you know, why does he bother? So uh, that was one or if not two apologies to go. So the third one really caught them all on deaf ears. But um, it's a shame... We're talking about a touchline for Aka, although I do love one, and bad refereeing decisions when Hyungmin's son scored one of the goals of the season. And we haven't even mentioned it yet. We've been talking about the game for five minutes or more. Uh, absolute world-class goal from a horrifically out-of-form player. Um, and... There was, you know, in between the fracas and the bad refereeing, there was some quite good football in this game. I have to say most of it played by Brighton, um, who I I can't compliment them enough for how good they've been this season, despite all the disruption behind the scenes. Yeah, 100% um, accurate. And it was Sun's 100th Premier League goal. I watched all of them yesterday. He scored a lot of goals like that, right and left foot, like, like just cutting inside either way and just absolutely bending it perfectly unstoppable strike so uh, you're right we should have talked about that a bit more but we didn't and now we've run out of time in part one so uh, we'll hopefully talk about some football in part two beginning with goal crazy Roy Hodgson's Crystal Palace Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Let's go to Ellen Road then. Leeds won Crystal Palace 5. John says, how did you all cope during the unsettling hours when Crystal Palace weren't 12th? Uh, yeah, they had been 12th for 105 days until Saturday's results. They're safely back there now. Joe says, how much danger are Crystal Palace in of losing 12th with Lampard steering Chelsea and Big Roy winning games for fun? It's only six points between them. Um, Darren, do England need to get Roy Hodgson back in order to realise their true attacking potential? Possibly hiring Roy Hodgson, Troy was a a good idea, and like he got a bit lucky in the first game with that last minute winner. Their first half yesterday was terrible, and suddenly they just scored buckets of goals. You saw Palace fans sort of in shock. Like, how have we we've scored five goals in one football match? There was a there was a game a couple of seasons ago when they did this, exactly the same thing away at West Bromwich Albion, 
Um, and the second half rain goals exactly the same as 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 uh, Sunday, and all the Palace fans were like, "What did Roy do at half time?" And it and it was one of those where I, I just think again, they were awful. It was one way traffic. Leeds uh, had created so many chances. Big shout out to Sam Johnston there, who had a tremendous first half, and without him, could have been three or four. Then Palace get that goal just before half time. Uh, Mark Guillet and you know you think to yourself now it's going to be a really good game it's going to be a competitive game Leeds stay keep the same theme that they've been doing they will probably think how have Palace scored and whatever what unfolded in the second half was just incredible this free-flowing creative like all the 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 forward (laughs) players bombing forward and honestly I couldn't believe it but uh, listen let's pick out a couple of really big names Elise uh, a hat-trick of, of assists at that kid. If he had, I don't know if you saw the chance right at the end where he twisted and turned, got into the box, and then for some reason with his right foot, smashed it over the bar. That would have been the goal of the season and probably the performance, a 45 minutes performance of anybody um, because he caused Leeds so many problems. Eze smiling again. Jordan Ayew scored two goals. I don't think how, how big this is. Jordan Ayew scored two goals in this game. The header was, ah, Christian Benteke-type header, if I can use a former player. So Roy can deservedly have a massive pat on the back. I will say that this was the run of games that everyone was going, right, Palace now need to get it right here. And I always think it's harsh when a manager, not just because it's Patrick Vieri, I mean, he's a great guy, but when a manager comes in at a really good period of time when, yes, the players need a little bit of boosting because of defeats against everybody that's above them in the league, but now they're going to be playing teams that are below them and in and, or in and around them, I should say. So it's come at a good time, but that win, that is significant, the manner in which they 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 won the game. The performances of the standout performances of those those forward thinking players, and Ayu getting two goals. I mean, amazing. I really liked Barry Roy Hodgson at the end. Going, I'm not going to get carried away with this victory, but literally like grinning, like I've never seen him grin in the entire life. Yeah, well, as Troy said, it was a remarkable capitulation by Leeds and an incredible turnaround by Palace because Leeds should have been out of sight by half time and. For Palace to get into the dressing room, not only not losing, but uh, on level terms, was <laughs> just incredible. But, you know, Elise as a IU um, has never convinced me, I have to say. But when they're all click and it, at the same time, it doesn't happen very often, but it happened yesterday. They're mesmerising and, and they're all, you know, well, Elise and Eze are terrific players. Odson Edward hasn't really convinced since going to Palace, but he was he was good too yesterday. But um a, a worrying collapse from Leeds because they were absolutely dreadful in that second half, having been outstanding in the first. Let's go to uh, St Mary Southampton one Man City four. So the title is now in Man City's hands. It's also in Arsenal's hands, obviously because they play each other. Erling Haaland will is back um, does he make Man City worse? We don't know, but what an overhead kick. Because it because that that's like the ball is it's not like in the perfect position to execute that bit of skill, I think. No, you had to go incredibly high. You know, pivot himself in such a way that, you know, I'm sure the members of the panel would have ended up in hospital. Uh, no offense to anyone here. But we can we can try it later and we'll see who ends up faring best. 
And yeah, it, it didn't seem like the most sensible thing to do. Anyone else would have just either gone and chased it out to the corner and tried to get it back in the box, or you know, if they were lucky, head it back down. But no, Erling Haaland is without doubt the best number nine in the world. And you know, once you once you're over the forty goal mark in a season, you might as well just keep trying different things and proving more and more week in week out that you've got things in your locker that no one else has. Everyone, you know, he gets criticised for not touching the ball enough and blah blah blah. When you are scoring forty odd goals. <laughs> By April, you know, you are an incredible footballer and now he's just, he's in the mood just to prove any ludicrous doubters wrong that he will do things that no one else can. And that was, that was a wonderful moment to see in, in the Premier League. First City player to reach 30 league goals since Franny Lee in 1972. Yeah. And he's sort of on course for Dixie Dean levels. I mean, Barry, you and I both noticed the real high point of this game. Yeah, uh, at half time after he'd scored, and hats off to Southampton for a brilliant first half performance. By the way, um, in which they should have taken the lead. Uh, Kamaline Sulemana missed a couple of decent chances. He he untied his hair and did the sweep, you know, to loosen his mane. And Sky Sports seemed strangely fixated with this and kept playing it in slow motion. It reminded us of the Timothy advert from back in the 80s where that blonde lady was <laughs> washing really her did. hair in a waterfall. <laughs> so if if Timothy are looking for someone to endorse their shampoo, I don't know if they're even still a going concern. Earl, get in touch with, with Erling's Mr. 20%. Maybe that was his plan. He's he's look, you know, he's just done his new boot deal. Now he needs to move into different areas. You know, he no, showed off his new boots for the overhead kick. Now he showed off his hair. You know, I'm sure any any shampoo conditioner maker will be eager to sign him up. I was going to say, I thought that you were saying that this has been his grand plan all along. Football is just a byproduct. This has been, you know, football helps him on the journey to becoming the new the new face and hair of Timothy. Well, look, he's obviously just taking the piss out of football by scoring four goals every week. You know, clearly football is just a, you know, it's just a hobby. You know, he's just trying <laughs> to prove himself, prove how pointless this whole existence is with this performance art piece every week of banging in goals from wherever he is on the pitch. And he, the real gain is Procter & Gamble. No, Johnson & Johnson, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> you can do Procter & Gamble, you can do them all. Uh, for City, Troy, Kevin De Bruyne isn't the fastest Premier League, fastest player in Premier League history to reach 100 assists. Meanwhile, you've got Jack Grealish, who's now scored nine and set up 15 since the World Cup. I mean, this is, these two are, City are now on another level, aren't they? Yeah, they, they, <laughs> they've clicked into gear, haven't they? And they've clicked into gear with everybody enjoying themselves. With Pep now not tinkering with his team, making sure that he has almost like a 11-13 that he's going to trust Phil Foden's injured at the moment, but going to trust until the end of the season and, and everyone else is going to be a bit part. And I think because of that, we're seeing the best of Jack Grealish. I mean, again, yes, that, I mean, Barry's right. Southampton were, were good in that first half. But from the minute that cross left De Bruyne's boot and Haaland got his head on it, I think it was game over almost because it was the kind of control that City needed and the goals in the second half, Grealish's first one, Grealish's goal was 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 very good. Again, a pass in and behind the full-back. Grealish on the end of um, another great pass to, to to cross for Haaland. And, you know, it was just, I think Haaland must be a little bit pissed though because every time he gets taken off on two, there seems to be a penalty straight away. 
Um, and there's the hat trick gone again. This guy just wants to break records, all records. I think he understands Pep's mindset now where he says, look, I, you know, you've done enough. We've won the game. I need you sharp fit for what's coming next. But I still think the goal scorer in him would have wanted to stay on the park for another five, ten minutes, see if he could get the hat trick. And the penalty presented itself straight away. But yeah, they are in top form. De Bruyne now looks like he's enjoying his football again from the World Cup. He didn't look like he was enjoying it and Pep was resting him or leaving him on the bench in really important games. But he's enjoying his football again, isn't it? You can tell. You can just tell. And this is, I think yesterday would have sparked them now. That would have been Pep going, right, they've cracked. Let's let's crack on. Let's keep cracking on now and let, let's go for this title again alongside the Champions League. Yeah, what's coming next is uh, Bayern Munich on Tuesday. We'll cover that on uh, Wednesday's pod, of course. Stackhouse says, if if all Matthias Nunes does at Wolves is score that goal, is it worth 38 million quid? As a Wolves fan, I think yes, seeing how few goals we score in general. Will, you're at this game. Uh, we'll get on to Frank Lampard in just a second. But what? I mean, I, I hope you had a good, I hope you were in a good position for the angle for that strike because it was absolutely glorious. You're in a bad position for the angle. I would, I would like to say the Molyneux press box has one of the best views of the Premier League. So if everyone else can see, see that as an example, that'd be great. Yeah, it was one of those goals where this, there wasn't a celebration immediately. There was a, there was a half second where everyone, everyone in the same was just going, fuck it now. <laughs> and then the roar came up. It was just like he's done that. Well, has he done that? You know, the, the the netting manufacturer using that as an example of how good their product is. You know, that's 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 where we're at. it was an incredible strike. You're not gonna you're not gonna hit a ball that well. You know, in, in your life, you might as well enjoy it. Retire Mateus Nunes. You know, you can go whack the ball at you know walls all you want in Wolverhampton. You're never going to hit a ball that well. Keeper had no chance. Admittedly, he had a in the negative for Chelsea, had too much space to hit it, but um, yeah, what a what a goal! And you know, Wolves. Think about Wolves under Lepetegui. They're very efficient. They all know what they're doing. They were missing Ruben Neves as well, which is quite incredible considering they dominated midfield without him. Which again probably shows how poor Chelsea were. But it was great to see Diego Costa, who will never score a goal in professional football again. You know, I think that's nine, <laughs> 19 games for Wolves without scoring. But he is loving life, just angering centre-backs that are probably on far more money than him and have got longer of their careers left. But he loves just winding them up for, well, for an hour. He, after an hour, he was absolutely knackered enough to be taken off. But it was, it was just to see, it's just great to see him enjoying himself for that hour. Um, and, you know, Wolves will stay up now thanks to, you know, the change they made in manager. Um, and good, good for them. Trent Lampard, do anything noticeably different to what Graham Potter and, and Bruno had done? Did, did they set up differently? Yeah, he went went back to a back four. It was James, Fafana, Koulibaly and Cucurella as a back four and then three in central midfield and he had three up top, which obviously hasn't been the way. Um, so that was a slight change and you think with three in midfield against arguably two of Wolves, they should dominate, but they were really poor in midfield, couldn't get a grip of it. Gallagher was given more freedom to push forward in a Frank Lampard-esque role, but didn't produce anything. They had one shot on target. They were highly reliant throughout the game on Jao Felix producing something of nothing. And he had the one shot of cutting him from the left and hit it straight at Jose Sarr. Um, they just, yeah, they were really poor. Sterling played on the right wing. Havertz was down the middle and Sterling's only real involvement was getting booked. He was up against arguably Wolves' third choice left back. He's actually a centre back and he just never never didn't lay a glove on him. It was 
you know, it was pretty poor to see. And Lampard afterwards was saying, we need more aggression in play. You know, I've only had a couple of days with the players. Whereas I would argue that if you've only got a couple of days with the players, tactics probably is a bit secondary. It's quite hard to change dynamic on that front. But what you want to see from a new manager and someone coming in is that your team is giving far more than they were under the previous one. Because it was very flat under Potter, we can all agree. And they just came out, it looks like a, you know, final day of the season effort. They'd already secured fourth place or something. And there just wasn't that intensity that that you need to turn things around. And they've got Real Madrid midweek, so good luck with that. Yeah, tricky. Paul says, for which decisions would the panel feel they need James Corden's advice? Uh, This apparently, James Corden... Uh, recommended Frank Lampard to Todd Bowley. I'm not exactly sure of the the details of all of this, and I'm, I, mean, I don't know if that's how it happened. But you know, uh, New York restaurants in which to get breakfast. I think <laughs> he's quite strident opinions on that. Doesn't he? <laughs> yes, I think so. But he just made the worst. It was the worst order in history in that New York restaurant. It was an egg white omelette. Which sounds absolutely that horrific. Sad, it's just a, fr- it's a fried egg without the yolk. <laughs> like, it's insanity. And you're trusting that man to pick the next Chelsea manager. Like, God knows he's going to turn up in the summer. You know, Heston Blumenthal might get a job, hopefully. Might be more appropriate. Brentford 1, Newcastle 2. Five was on the spin for Newcastle. They stay third. A lot of praise, Troy, for Eddie Howe. They were second best in the first half. He made changes. It changed the game. Simple as that. Um, you know, Newcastle on a roll, aren't they? Away at West Ham, they were unbelievable. And again today, that you know, on Saturday, they had to dig that one out. But it just shows that he's got the permutations to create change, to do something different. I, I remember speaking on the the pod a couple of weeks ago after the Carabao Cup final, and, and mentioned Isaac and Wilson on the same pitch together, which was quite good. You know, they were losing. The game had gone almost. Man United were were probably winning at a canter. But Isaac and, and, and Wilson created a little thing that I thought, no, there's something there for him. So there's no surprise that he brought Wilson on. Um, Wilson created an effort and had, well, created the goal for Isaac and had one disallowed. They're just on a, the momentum with Newcastle is flying at the moment. They are absolutely flying. Although a little mark, I saw this last night, Anthony Gordon, who came on at halftime, was taken off, I think, in the 95th minute. Um, he just made a foul. They thought he was injured. Let's take him off. There's only one minute left. And his reaction wasn't great. So he pushed uh, away Eddie Howe. He pushed away the assistant. He was fuming, as they say, because he missed one minute of football in the second half. So maybe there's a dressing down for Anthony Gordon there, but he, he hasn't played yet. And I think he hasn't started yet. And I think that's the thing for him. He's a, he's a lad that wants to play all the time. But he's got a manager who's going to rein him in at times as well. But no, they were Newcastle again. Eddie Howe is absolutely flying with that team. Everything that he does at the moment, he's getting it right. And the team are believing in him, whether it's Isaac or Wilson or whether they both play together and a couple of the permutations in midfield as well. Um, he's getting it spot on and, and it's going to be a great end of season for them, I think. Uh, hilarious foul by Botman for the penalty that Ivan Tony missed I mean, absolutely cleared out the land didn't he and then Ivan Tony because he's so good at penalties he's had 22 and 22 was running off celebrating even though Nick Pope had say just landed on the ball which I enjoyed he then did get his penalty um which uh, I'm actually today Alan Shearer and Danny Murphy were furious about that award I I kind of just presumed it was a foul but maybe, maybe I'm wrong it was Kevin Shade that was uh cleared out by Botman I thought he's a 
very smooth operator. Very good. Very good. That's, that's a good one for you, Barry. Smooth operator. I got, I got, I got, I got your tumbleweed there. I've been, yeah, I've been really sitting did. on that one since Saturday. Know your audience, Buzz. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't. I mean, look, I just, it wasn't terrible. And maybe I should have given it more. I, I, I thought you were going to make a salient point about how he looks like quite a good footballer and he's not someone I knew a lot about. No, he, he does actually yeah. look like quite a good he's footballer. He's really good. Forrest really wanted him in the summer, but they didn't, uh, didn't go through with it because they decided to spend their money on silly people in the end but that's a different story so at Newcastle uh, they are uh, you know still in the box seat for the Champions League as are Manchester United two quite unglamorous wins this week for United one nil over Brentford and this one but they are they're getting the job done Will and as producer Joel says the McTomisons, um the the uh, yeah the the rebirth of Scott McTominay is is helping them along the way yeah well he, McTominay started the season off really well and I think it helped that for the first time in years since coming into the team, there was a defensive midfielder at the club that he could A, learn from, B, try and, you know, match him. Obviously, because Casper is a better player, but it gave him an impetus to do better. And actually, he's had a really good season, but obviously he's not going to play every week because Casemiro is so good. And, you know, I think Tom and met Elton John this week at his concert, so there's one to, to touch on later. Um, so he's, he's having a great season on and off the pitch, isn't he? Very much the rocket man of Manchester United. <laughs> He's still standing, despite the uh, arrival of Casemiro. But yeah, no, United, United, United were certainly efficient again. Everton actually, considering how they've been under Dyche, were very poor at the back and made mistakes, which helped help United see it through and get get the second goal. United's problem now is whether Rashford's injured because he's, you know, the goals he scored this season is what what's kept them high in the table because obviously their other striker, Voot Veghorst, has been, let's say, terrible. I feel for Vout though. I do. I mean, I like. I think he gets it. I think he realizes that you know he's not a Manchester United level player necessarily, and he's having a really good time and he contributed. He does get. He gets it. He's doing everything that's been asked for, of him. But unfortunately, his style of play doesn't fit what United are doing as a replacement, you know, for, for Martial. He's a completely different player. He's not a great finisher. United aren't getting the crosses into the box that he needs to score from. And so, unfortunately, he just changes the dynamic of play so much. It's it's not helpful when he's in the team. Um, so, yeah, United are going to have to hope that Rashford's not as bad as he think. But good news, Martial came on, scored and... You know he's gonna he's he's gonna have to replace Rashford if if he's injured. Jordan Pickford had a great game for Everton, but but not enough. The next two games are Fulham and Palace, so uh, we'll need to pick up points uh, from those. Uh, and Harry Maguire started Troy, which um, and he's had a little has he had a little run. I don't know how many games he's he's played in a row, but I sort of feel like I'd like him to be really successful. What do you class as really successful? Is that just a run of games? Because if that's the case, he's hit his success, isn't he? Um, yeah, listen, uh, Everton were not good enough going forward to really test Maguire. So it was a, listen, there was a chance from Sims in the first half that he dragged wide, but Everton were not good enough. And so for Maguire, it's probably the perfect game to play in. And, and I don't think he's going to move the, the the two centre-halves that will start, you know, most games and definitely the important games but it's a good game for him to be involved in you know he can show off more of his uh qualities on the ball there was a couple of headers I can't deny there's a couple of corners where he's got his head first and 
he gets criticised a little bit. Under, listen, I'm not his biggest fan, so it's maybe wrong to come to me. But he gets criticised sometimes, even when he does the basics very, very well. Um, and the basics for a centre-back like Harry Maguire is make sure that you're in a position to head it, make sure you stop anyone from getting round you, and can you set up a couple of our, our, our attacks as well. And the fact that Bruno Fernandes was coming so deep, and there was a reason why he was coming so deep, all you had to do was make sure you you fed Fernandez because he was then and McTominay were playing these raking passes over a very high Everton backline. Ben Godfrey was the one. I mean, if Anthony really could finish, it could have been three or four before half time, and I'm not surprised that Ben Godfrey was whipped off at half time. But that they were obviously playing to the manager's tactics, and I think Sean Dyche has come out a little bit here because he set up all wrong. I actually thought Everton had an opportunity again on on Saturday, and then when I saw the way they set up. And the fact that Man United had 21 shots in the first half, which apparently is a Premier League high, um, you kind of realise that they did things wrong in that half. But the, the goal, the McTominay goal, there's eight Everton defenders in and around the box, all doing absolutely nothing or looking at each other, wondering who's going to press. And Sancho's ball into McTominay was, was brilliant. People are saying that oh, Pickford should have saved it near post, but he was really close and he hit it with everything he had. Um, yeah. And it's a really, really good goal. Yeah, I actually agree. That is proof that you can get beaten at your near post and it isn't your fault. Uh, uh, that'll do for part two. Part three, we'll rattle through the rest of the Premier League and do any other business. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly uh, at the King Power, Barry. Leicester nil, Bournemouth won. Huge win for Bournemouth and completely deserved. Absolutely. I wasn't convinced by Gary O'Neill. I'm still not totally convinced, but he's um, got a couple of great results for them the last couple of games against a Leicester team that were nothing short of dreadful. Uh, their first half performance was absolutely dismal, and you know an uncharacteristic error from James Madison led to the goal. But Bournemouth, with better finishing and a more clinical finisher than Dominic Solanke, could have scored way more goals, or Bournemouth could have scored way more goals. Leicester seem, they look like the only team in, in among the nine, or well, maybe not nine anymore, but the relegation contenders who have completely given up. Their morale is on the floor. There's talk that Jesse Marsh was going to get the job, which I would have thought a weird appointment, but that seems to be have collapsed over the finer points of his contract negotiations as happened at, where was it, um, Southampton, after um, that Welsh fellow got sacked. Yeah, Bournemouth have given themselves a great chance of staying up, uh, and Leicester look in all sorts of trouble, because there just doesn't seem to be any team spirit there at all. Ever since um, Barney christened Phil Billing paperless, he has gone on a wonderful run. And uh, I, I mean that was that was an interesting back pass from James Madison, Will. But um, but Billing has got watching him go. He's got he's got a lot to his game, and he's sort of even that he's like enormous, but he's also like really talented player. Yeah, no, he's incredibly good on the ball. You know, got great physicality, um, and you know can obviously read a mistake from a from a number ten at a moment's notice. He's really improved under O'Neill and coming back to the Premier League and shown, you know, that he's made a step up after after a you know, a long time at Bournemouth where probably previously he wasn't seen as a as a top midfielder, but what he's shown this season could see him move to a slightly higher club 
no offense to Bournemouth again. How many times can you not offend Bournemouth without offending them in one in one podcast? Will they're the, fir- the furthest team from my house, right. so I assume <laughs> I'll never meet a Bournemouth fan. It's good logic. So they're always they're my go-to to to offend. And they also, they're lovely fans, though. Lovely fans. Leicester, the, the, the Jesse Marsh thing is interesting, uh, Troy, isn't it? Because I minded to agree with Barry. When you heard that, you were like, that doesn't seem like a great idea. And he might be brilliant, he might not. And then for that to fall through sort of makes it almost feels even more incompetent to not get Jesse Marsh than to get him. I think we're in this era at the moment, aren't we, where the sackings have been done. And I think most of us can understand why the managers are being sacked. But then those linked with these jobs and and this is another strange one because I think is it the back end of last week I heard Martin O'Neill's name being banded about as well um to come back to Leicester and and Rafa's name's in there and maybe Marsh was watching somewhere that performance and it was as limp as anything and even some of the players I think Johnny Evans has said that he can see the fear in the players faces that you know this could be it this could be them going down and maybe Jesse Jesse Marsh who you know, was almost taking leads down, has probably gone, no, I actually don't want that on my CV. It's a group of players that I don't think I can change their mindset and, and, and yeah, I'll, I'm best staying away from there. Or if they do want me, I want a big wage packet um, to successfully keep them up and probably couldn't agree it. But I think it's right what's being said out. The team's down at the bottom and I'm looking at the table now. They are in free fall and they don't look like they've got anything in them. You know, Jamie Vardy coming back in, you thought, right, Vardy will sniff a chance out. He's not sniffing anything out. Madison is now not playing to his levels. We could run right through that team. It's going to need something big. I'm going to need something big to get them back on track or else they will be my surprise team to go down. If um if they're in free fall, Barry, what are Nottingham Forest? Are they in sort of just fall <laughs> or... I'm not sure Nottingham Forest ever went high enough to be in free fall. It's not like they've gone over a cliff. It's more fallen off a, a curb, maybe into it, and are in danger of dropping into the the grate along the gutter. Their waveform is just astonishingly bad, and I guess that has to be laid at the door of Steve Cooper. The blame for that, I think he's done a pretty good job at Forest but uh, as we noted last week that supposed vote of confidence he got didn't actually contain anything resembling a vote of confidence it was more a statement he is still our manager but things need to improve quickly things haven't improved quickly away at Villa was always going to be a tough assignment because Villa have, have transformed their Fortunes under Unai Emery and Villa fans will again note we're talking about Forest and not them. Apologies. Uh, but there are very bad teams down there. You know, seven, eight, nine bad teams vying for three. Well, vying to not get one of the three relegation places. Some very bad teams will stay up and Forest may be one of them. They're not terrible away from home they are shockingly bad like shocking I, I i sort of think that the opposite's a buzz but actually obviously because the premier league is improving so much that these teams are actually all right i don't i think the three teams in the bottom three will go down and that actually the the quality of the premier league is getting so much better and these teams are actually very organized the problem is generally they can't score but there's no sort of standout team that is utterly terrible as there has been in recent years. I think Forrest's problem, and they'll come back to it, is the January transfer window was appalling. 
they signed some a lot of players that hadn't played games all season. Shelby was brought in for experience and passed the ball straight to Traore at the weekend to score the opener. After Forrest had done quite well in the first half, Chris Wood, complete change of dynamic up top, didn't help. They've been lucky with injuries overall this season. Um, another two muscle injuries on Saturday, so I'm sure the medical department will, will be uh, getting shouted at. Um, but I think, obviously, with the vote of confidence for Cooper, vote of confidence in voted commas, the problem they've got is Leicester will tell you with Jesse Marsh and the underwhelming appointments we see at other clubs is that there's no one to replace Cooper. And Cooper's done a good job. He's made mistakes, obviously, with tactics and whatnot. But to find someone to replace him with so few games to go and a team that looks like it's going down, it's not an appealing prospect. Um, so I think Forrest are really going to struggle to get out of it now. Ollie Watkins obviously get on that plane and um, another goal for Troy. I did like how John Joe Shelby tried to blame someone else for that pass. Um, um, Fulham West Ham, massive win for for, for David Moyes, Barry. Um, And the game wasn't a classic, Harrison Reed's own goal. Um, But my favourite bit of all of this, by by all accounts, he was going to get the chop if he didn't, if he'd lost. And after the game, when he said, it's been a good week, we've had two clean sheets, We've had two one nil wins. And you're sitting there going, "Is that was that, is that was that West Ham's week?" I, I'm sure something else happened. <laughs> they got out with five. He just admitted the five one defeat to Newcastle. It was so funny. But that that sort of textbook noise, isn't it? Or just textbook manager speak. Um, it that's a huge win for West Ham against out of sorts Fulham because in their next six games they have to face Arsenal, Liverpool, Man U and Man City so it's difficult to see them getting too many if any points from any of those four games Uh, he made five changes to the side that got monstered by Newcastle maybe he didn't realise he'd made five changes because he seems to have forgotten that game was played uh, (laughs) he had Danny Ings and Mikel Antonio playing together for the first time. Normally it's one of them. He he played both of them. And I suppose at least he's he's doing something, he's trying things and and it worked. Uh moving on, Barry, the old firm Celtic beat Rangers 3-2 mini Fitbar corner if you've got it in your locker. Uh I do. I I couldn't watch this game because I I was uh, on Manchester United Everton duty, but I've seen the highlights. It was Score was 3-2. It was more routine win for Celtic than the scoreline suggests. I think uh, Kyogo Furuhashi scored two. James Tavernier, either side of a James Tavernier free kick. Then they went 3-1 up through Jota. Uh, Tavernier scored a second. And there was a bit of a bone of contention. Alfredo Morales had a goal disallowed for a push on Alistair Johnston, that Canadian international who Celtic signed after the World Cup. Rangers are incensed and they said they'd be writing to the, the FITBA equivalent of the PGMOL asking for an explanation as to why the goal was disallowed. I expect they'll get a letter back saying it was disallowed because he pushed Alistair Johnson in the back. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Rangers are a bit aggrieved. Celtic are 12 points clear now with seven ga- games left. Any slim hopes Rangers had of mounting a, a challenge are gone. It's interesting, actually. Michael Beale, this was his first defeat, league defeat since uh, joining Rangers from QPR. So you, on the face of it, you'd say that's good, but he's now played, sent teams out to play against Celtic three times. They've drawn one, they got beaten in the League Cup semi-final, they've lost here. So they've got 
a Scottish Cup semi-final coming up against Celtic. Um, and if he loses that one as well, what, you know, will it have been a good start to his tenure or a really bad one? I don't know. I don't think Rangers fans will settle for three defeats and a draw out of four games. Obviously, big day of EFL today. Good Friday was a big day. You know, Easter really you know dictates a lot of what happens in the EFL. Sort of decisive uh, time. Had two straight wins for Cambridge. By the way, so look, on Wednesday, we'll talk about the EFL. Congratulations, obviously, to Burnley. We all knew they'd go up. Um, uh, they did it with a 2-1 win away at Middlesbrough. Um, and we'll talk about Vincent Company's brilliant job. Then uh, let me point you in the direction as well of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly to talk about England's win over Brazil in the finalissima. They're playing Australia uh, in the week. So we'll talk about those two games as well when we have a little bit more time. The game of today, Bank Holiday Monday, is in the conference. Oh, yeah. Massive. Wrexham, Notts County, uh, first and second in the table, 100 points each, and they play at uh, Wrexham's ground today. And that is just... <laughs> what a what a, what a a contest to look forward to. Yeah, I mean, important to point out that people who don't necessarily look that far down, only top goes through and then the other goes into the playoffs. So you could finish 40 or 50 points above somebody and they could still beat you in the playoffs. So, uh, uh, yeah, fascinating, that one. Uh, finally, Joachim writes, uh, me and my partner went to London. You didn't give us any advice. Uh, he did ask for advice on what he should do in London. Our apologies. But we managed. And I proposed. And she said yes. So we left London broke. As a Norwegian, I'm used to high prices. But sweet Jesus, he says. <laughs> but happy and engaged. All we need is a congratulations from Barry to bless us. Uh, congratulations. And I agree, London is horrifically expensive, even by Norwegian standards. <laughs> uh, I hope you put a big rock on her finger and uh, spared no expense there. Uh, Marvellous. And uh, yeah, good luck to you. Have a lovely time. And we wish you a long and happy marriage. Normally, Barry says, oh, I'll give it six years. But it feels that was a heartfelt one. So, I, you know. Well, as, as I'm getting older and more embittered and more resigned to the fact that I will die alone, I, I, I need to be more magnanimous in my congratulations oh, for other people right. who have found happiness. Is that a come and get me plea? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Is this, is this the Guardian Soulmates pod? Yeah, yeah, is it? It is. yeah we, uh, football's really we a cover, isn't it? Um, almost, it's sort of, sort of sounds like, you know, Scrooge, you're just sort of coming round to like, you know, just like showering everyone with love by the end. You're visited by ending ghosts over the weekend. How exciting. Uh, sorry to give away the story of Scrooge spoiler alert there um, for those who aren't quite across that uh, look, that'll do for today um, uh, thank you so much Troy thank you Max thank you Will thank you very much thank you Barry thank you uh, Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. back after the first Champions League quarterfinals on Wednesday morning this is The Guardian <laughs> 